Good morning. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. If you, uh, if you were not here last week, some of this week's uh, sermon may kind of catch you off guard, some of the things that we say about slavery. So let's just do a, a, a little review of last week's sermon. We said that last week's sermon was basically an hour-long intro to this week's sermon. Uh, because of the history of slavery in America, it can be confusing for us to talk about slavery. Uh, because of the fact that uh, translators of the English Bible have translated uh, the, the Hebrew word for bondservant as slave in many of our English translations, and because Jewish slavery in the Old Testament and New Testament slavery in the Greco-Roman world are not at all the same thing, that can also be confusing. So last week what we did was we, we walked through and we saw that the part of uh, bond servitude that God legislates is actually... Uh, It's weird to us, but it's perfectly within what we understand to be a good, normal, moral functioning of the world. But we said that Greco-Roman slavery is, uh, in fact, evil, and it's very much like uh, race-based chattel slavery in the South. And we said that after doing a complete survey on what the Bible has to say about the Mago Dei, the image of God in people, and the way that slavery functioned, Uh, In the New Testament world, we said that we could say without a doubt, with 100% confidence, that God is opposed to slavery. So as your atheist friends and family and co-workers might argue with you about whether or not the Bible approves of or accepts accepts slavery, uh, we know that he doesn't, and we know that the Bible is actually opposed to slavery. We also talked about the God's plan to eradicate slavery. It wasn't revolutionary in the way that we would like to think about revolutions. It wasn't a bloody coup. It wasn't a military tactic. It wasn't a political maneuver. It was God planting the seed of a society within a society. And as the gospel grew up in the life of the church, it slowly overcame the Roman Empire and destroyed the evil fabric of slavery in that land. Nevertheless, we saw that Slavery was still real. It was a reality that people in the New Testament times had to deal with, which means that Paul, as he's writing the Corinthian, excuse me, the church in Ephesus, he has to communicate to those who are still part of the system, those who are still masters, and those who are still slaves who have come to know Christ, he still has to communicate to them and teach them what the gospel means for their lives. How do you live out the gospel in this particular sphere of authority? Right? So we saw that in the first three chapters of Ephesians, God is teaching the Ephesian Christians about their identity. And then in the last three chapters, he's telling them, okay, this is how you ought to live in light of that identity. So he tells moms and dads, this is how the gospel applies to your parenting. He tells kids, this is how the gospel applies to your relationship with your mom and dad. He tells husbands, this is what the gospel means for your leadership in the home. He tells wives, this is what the gospel means for your submission and respect to your husband. And then today, we come to slaves and masters. Paul says, hey, listen, this is what the gospel means for you in your particular station in life. Now, because this is uh, 
Because you say the word slavery and Americans clench up, we, we tighten up, you can feel everything getting tense in the room like a little bit of oxygen just got sucked out as soon as you say the word. Uh, pastors and teachers, when they talk about these verses this morning and a few other verses in the New Testament, what they like to do is they like to just briefly touch on it and then say, well, how this applies to us today really is with uh, bosses and their employees, Right? employers and employees. This, that, and there's a sense in which that's true. And actually, we're going to talk about that today. We're going to get to that application. But that application doesn't mean anything unless we actually understand the fact that Paul was really writing to slaves. And he was really writing to masters. And he, his original audience was actually going through, uh, they were actually experiencing life as Christians in these ways. And so we're going to talk about that. Um, also, we have to remember the basic pattern that we see in the, in the text uh, as Paul is teaching in the second half of Ephesians. He says, don't do this, instead do that, right? So, so don't lie with your tongue, but instead tell the truth. Don't use your hands for stealing, but instead use them for working so that you can share with other people. And then he follows up this, don't do that, instead do this. He, he usually follows it up with a why, he explains the reason why they need to live out these ethical imperatives. And you see that in this morning's text. So let me, let me read it and then flesh it out a little bit for us, okay? Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Bond servants, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is God's holy inspired, inerrant, and infallible word, and regardless of what people say with their modern sensibilities and broken moral compasses, it is completely good, right, and true. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us more of yourself this morning because we are so desperately in need of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I think you see the pattern pretty clearly in the text, right? So Paul says to slaves, uh, be, don't be people pleasers. Don't, don't offer eye service. Instead, obey your master with a sincere heart. Don't do this. Instead, do that. And then he gives the reason why. And we're going to talk about that. And then he says, masters, don't threaten. Instead, serve your slaves as under the Lord. And I get there by way of implication, and I'm going to show you how. And then he gives them the why. And we're going to talk about that here in a little while. Now, I think that the commands in this text are easy enough. The commands in prohibitions, they're easy to understand, right? Obedience and the proper use of authority, respectively. But the why, the why of it all, the, the reason that Paul gives why masters and slaves must behave in this way, the reason why they must comport themselves in this way, that is really the heart of this text. So uh, all of my points this morning are grounded in that. They're all grounded in the why. So I, I've got six points for you this morning uh, note takers. Point number one, remember God's authority. Point number two, remember God's desire. 
Point number three, remember God's character rewards. Point number four, remember God's character justice. Point number five, remember God's example. And then point number six, remember the gospel. Now, if you didn't get all of that, I'm going to go back through and, and say it when I do. So, point number one, remember God's authority. So you remember, all the way back in chapter 5, verse 21, when this whole authority dynamic started uh, taking root in the text, when Paul started teaching about how we relate to authority, he said that, every, excuse me, we said that every single person who has authority has that authority for one reason and one reason only. God has given it to them. Right? Paul says that explicitly in Romans 13.1. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which is from God. And then he says it another way, just so you're not confused. The authorities that exist have been appointed by God. Paul is saying that about a Caesar who hates Christianity and is actively attempting to kill Christians. Okay? He says, nevertheless, that authority is appointed by God. Now, this reality that all authority is ultimately downstream of God and his authority, that God is delegating his authority out to these rulers, it should be the first thing that pops into your head when you read verse 5. Paul says, slaves, obey your earthly masters. He didn't have to say earthly. Paul could have just said, slaves, obey your masters. Why do you think he says, obey your earthly masters? Well, I think the reason has to be because he's reminding slaves that the authority of their masters is a very limited authority. It's confined to this world. But there is a master in heaven who is not of this world, who has authority over this world, over this earth, and his authority is the ultimate authority. And that's why I think Paul goes on to say in verse 5 that obedience must be with a sincere heart. How can a slave obey an earthly master with sincerity? Well, if the slave understands that that authority that the master has is ultimately God's authority divested in that master, then there is a sense in which true, sincere obedience is possible. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in the second point. But then, in verse 9, Paul says, and he's talking to the masters now, he says, do the same to them. When I, first, when I first read this in my sermon prep, I was a little confused. Do the same to them. Because he tells, he tells the slaves to obey their masters. And then he tells masters to do the same. Well, it, you see, that's confusing. Because a master doesn't obey. That's what it means to be a master. Right? So I, well, what do you mean, Paul, do the same? Well, I think the answer has to be, he's telling them to remember who has the authority. And then I see that when he goes on to say, don't forget, God is in heaven and he is going to render judgment on you and your slaves alike. Remember who is really in charge. Now, we're, again, we're going to talk more about that in, in, later in the sermon. But in light of this reality, Paul tells masters that they should not threaten their slaves. He tells them, they, look, look at the verse, uh, starting in verse 9. He says, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. When I, was, um, when I was an enlisted member of the military, uh, and if you've been in the military, you can vouch for this, uh, much of my daily life was in many ways similar to slavery. Not exactly like slavery, 
but in many ways similar to slavery, right? There were people, sergeants, officers, who controlled every aspect of my daily life, including almost every aspect of my freedom, when I could go to the bathroom, when I could eat food, when I could go to sleep, when I could wake up. They were in complete control of my life. Now, my sergeants, who were kind of our first-line masters, if you will, they, well, there were two different kinds of sergeants. There were one kind of sergeants, they would always yell and scream and uh, discipline with severity and harshness, sometimes even hit. Yes, that does still happen in the military even today in basic training. I saw a drill sergeant hit a guy in the face, and it worked. You know, they got the job done. Because at the end of the day, in the army, you don't have a choice. You will do what you are told unless you want to pay a very severe price. See what I mean when it sounds kind of like slavery? You're gonna, yeah. But then there were other sergeants who not only had, our, uh, had authority over us, but they also had res- our respect. Right? They, they led from the front. They, they led by example. They didn't have to yell. They didn't have to scream. They didn't have to threaten because they understood their authority to be something that they could use to help us, to care for our well-being. Uh, rather than viewing their authority as a means of keeping us under control, they, thought, they saw their authority as a tool to serve us. That is the kind of authority that Paul wants masters to exercise over their slaves. And so he says stuff like, don't threaten. Now, uh, you may be sitting there thinking, all right, here's Paul's big ethical imperative for masters, right? He's going to bring the thunder. He's going to really tell them how to behave themselves. And then he kind of hits them with what feels like to us sort of a one-liner dud. Don't threaten. It's like, really, Paul? Is that, is that all you have to say to masters? But when you stop and think about it, this is actually a pretty powerful thing for Paul to say. And I'll show you why. Paul is assuming that we are going to reason from the lesser to the greater, right? So if you cannot threaten your, say, your slaves, that means also by way of implication that you cannot hit your slave. If you can't threaten them, you certainly can't hit them. You can't take advantage of them. You can't sexually assault them. You can't treat them like they're not humans. If, if my daughter goes out on a date, and that's never going to happen, but just theoretically, like if we do a thought experiment here, If my daughter goes out on a date and I say, hey, no holding hands while you're out on this date, and I would say that, she will understand by way of implication that since holding hands is off limits, so is anything else above that. No hugging, no kissing, no anything. But Paul has more than this one negative prohibition in other places when he writes masters, he says things like this, Colossians 4, chapter 1, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. That's incredible. Right and fair is not a category that existed in the ancient Greco-Roman world of slavery. But Paul says, give them that, and then listen to the reason, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Paul is saying, because your authority is ultimately God's authority, not only must you not threaten your slaves, but you also need to positively treat them with fairness. If I tell a husband not to cheat on his wife, I hope that he understands that I'm not merely telling him to avoid the physical act of adultery, 
but I'm also telling him to treat his wife as worthy of love and dignity and value and respect. I think that's what Paul is doing here in Ephesians chapter 6. Why shouldn't masters threaten their slaves? Well, because they are image bearers of God. Now, I think this idea is summarized well by Paul elsewhere when he writes to Christian masters. Listen to 1 Timothy. He tells them that, he says, Masters, you are to be devoted to the welfare of your slaves. Right? So now we have an all-encompassing principle. Now it's not just one specific one-off negative prohibition or one positive command for righteous distribution. He says, be devoted to their overall welfare. Such a command may not be, uh, it may not strike you as very powerful today, but in the ancient world, this was about as revolutionary and as countercultural of a thing as Paul could possibly say to masters in light of the gospel. And that's the point. Remember last week we said that the church is supposed to be distinct from the world. And as the gospel comes to life in this Greco-Roman world where slavery is abundant and cruel and evil, this society within a society says we cannot eradicate and abolish this system today, but you will still live like a Christian in light of this evil system. And one of the ways that you're going to do that, masters, is you are going to care for your slaves. You are going to seek their well-being. Paul wants masters to use their authority in, in the kind of way that David writes about uh, as he is on his deathbed. David, uh, as he's passing off the throne to the next generation, he says this about the right use of authority. He says, when one rules, exercises authority, over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, no, their master and yours, that, that whole thing, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning like the brightness after rain that brings grass forth from the earth. That is the kind of authority that Paul wants these masters to exercise. He wants them to do good to their slaves. Point number two, remember God's desire. One of my favorite illustrations of all time, you're gonna hear it if you're a member of this church for the next umpteen years, which you will be, because... I won't let you go. You're going to hear this over and over again. Uh, John Piper tells the story of uh, his son asking if he could take the car out one night. And John Piper says, yeah, sure, just wash it before you go, and then the keys are yours. And the son goes, okay, thanks, Dad. So uh, later that evening, the son comes to Piper, and he says, hey, Dad, can I get the keys to the car? And John goes, yeah, sure, did you wash it? And he goes, well, no, uh, uh, you know, like kids do. And uh, John's like, oh, well, yeah, wash it, and you can take it, it's yours. Well, you know, the son, he, he, thought he, he, he thought he was about to get around that, so he's upset that he's been had. So he huffs and he puffs and he stomps out and he slams the door. And John looks out the window of his study and he sees his son out there cleaning the car and, you know, he's throwing the soap on the car and he's, you know, everything is just his whole body language. He's just full of aggression and anger and rebellion. He's washing the car. And afterwards he comes and he says, I washed the car. Can I have the keys now? And John says, yeah, you can have the keys. Go ahead. And John asks this question, is that obedience? The answer to that is no. That's not what he wants as a father. He doesn't want his son to begrudgingly wash the car. He wants his son to do it out of a sense of joy and honor. And whatever that was, it wasn't obedience. 
That was Phariseeism of the modern generation. What this illustration so powerfully communicates is that what God wants most from us, his children, is not compulsory obedience, but obedience from the heart. That's why you see in verse six, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, right? Elsewhere, Paul says it like this, and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. That's what it means by way of eye service, by the way. Eye service is when you do something when someone's eye is on you, and then when their eye is off of you, you go back to living in rebellion. And, and here, Paul just says, listen, you can do this with sincerity, not just trying to, to, to please your master to try to manipulate this situation, but with real sincerity, sincerity, because you know that ultimately you are serving Christ. And if you know that, then you can do the will of God from the heart, not as a mere people pleaser or an eye server. Now, this doesn't do away with the hard questions. The main, the main hard question is this. How can someone suffering under the tyranny of slavery obey their oppressor with a sincere heart? So we got one answer. The, the one answer is that authority comes from God, so to obey that authority is ultimately to obey God, and that can give you a sense of sincerity. But I think there's more comfort and encouragement that can be had for those who are suffering injustice, which brings me to point number three. Remember God's character, his rewards. Remember God's character, rewards. This is point number three. So earlier we talked about Paul's pattern of teaching. Don't do this, instead do that, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Well, we see that in this morning's text. Paul tells slaves, don't people please, but offer real obedience to your earthly masters. And now we're going to see why. Look at verses seven and eight. He says, rendering service with a goodwill as unto the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. That is the way that slaves can suffer under the hand of oppression and injustice because they know, if they belong to Christ, they should know, they should trust the fact that one day God will reward them for their faithful suffering. What's he rewarding them for? Not just for the fact that they suffer, but for the fact that they suffer under understanding that the authority that they're under is actually God's authority. Now, we have to be careful here. Um, it's not just suffering that makes us commendable to God, as if anyone and everyone who suffers will be like rewarded from God. Elsewhere, Paul says this, and I think it's, I think it's clarifying. He says this, for this is a gracious thing, uh, excuse me, and this is not Paul, this is Peter. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. You see that language there? When mindful of God, one endures unjust suffering. That is the key to rewards. Why, why mindful of God? Why is that so important? Well, I think this is the language of faith. It's the language that says, I know that my suffering is not all there is to this life. I know that 
God is who he says he is and that his character is what he says it is and he's going to do what he promises to do. I'm not going to look at my circumstances and my experience and let that govern me. I'm instead going to look at God and his character and his promises and I trust that God will reward me with eternal delight. Look at the second half of verse eight. He says, whether, uh, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. When you suffer, trusting that the Lord will repay you for your suffering, that is a suffering of faith that delights God's heart. Point number four, remember God's character. And this time it's for the masters, and so remember his judgment. So slaves are called to remember God's character and his promise of reward as like a, to give them a sense of hope as they suffer under the hand of injustice. And now God, through Paul, calls on masters to remember God's character in a different light, in a more terrifying light. God calls on masters to remember that God is a just God. Look at the second half of verse eight again. He says, whether he is a bondservant or free, Going on to verse 9, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. In the 1960s, uh, the word love came to be like the one single word that captured the entire ethos of that generation. Right? If you want to understand the 60s, you just think about the word love. That's what it's all about. If you were to ask what, word, what one single word sort of typifies the ethos of the 2010s, I would say that word is justice. And just like the word love has a biblical meaning and understanding, but it came to be corrupted in the 60s and mean just kind of, and, and it still lives on into our day, love just means being nice to people, accepting them however they are. It's a very shallow, vapid, superficial understanding of love. So too the word justice in our day is in danger of taking on a meaning that it does not mean in the Bible. So I want to take a moment while we're here to talk about that because Paul is using the language of justice here at the end of verse 9 when he says, and there is no partiality with him. What Paul is saying there is God is a just God. This is the language of justice. And you see this all throughout the Old Testament whenever uh, God is trying to teach his people about what justice is. So I'm just going to read some scriptures to you. Uh, Note takers, uh, I'll give you the verse numbers as well. Exodus 23, verses 2 through 3. You shall not fall in line with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many, so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit, right? There's that language of partiality. Interesting, it says, don't be partial to a poor man. It makes sense, a bunch of people who used to be slaves, if there's a lawsuit that comes before you, you might be inclined to support the poor man instead of the rich man. That's still partiality. And God says, don't do that, it's not just. Leviticus 19.15, God says, you shall do no injustice in court. Well, what does injustice in court look like? He tells us, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness, that is without partiality, you shall judge your neighbor and do justice. Deuteronomy 1.17, you shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. 
Deuteronomy 16, 19. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Bribery inhibits partiality. Money comes in and unbalances the scales there. This is the concept that Paul is drawing on when he writes to Christian masters. He reminds them that although they have more power and prestige here in this life, they have more authority here on this earth, the God who made them and the God who is one day going to judge them will not give them any sort of partiality based off of their power and prestige and authority and money and whatever else they may have here on earth. He is the true master of all. And slave and master will both come before his bench so that he can render judgment on them. And on that day, God will be no respecter of persons. Poor people will not get into heaven because they're poor. Rich people will not get into heaven because they're rich. Powerful people will not get into heaven because they're powerful. Mob rule will not win the day. Nothing will other than God's perfect, laser-accurate judgment of what is good and right and true. And Paul is telling masters, you need to remember that day. You need to remember that day. He wants that last day of God's perfect righteousness and his perfect judgment to be guardrails for masters who are exercising their authority in a broken world where one step to the left and they're going to careen off into hell. One step to the right and they're going to swerve off into injustice. He says, keep that last day in mind and let it be guardrails for you as you use your authority in this broken system and a fallen world. So let me summarize these last two points for you, okay? On Judgment Day, God will give slaves who have suffered faithfully under injustice, he will give them their great rewards. And on the last day, he will also mete out his terrible judgment on those who have used their authority to do harm rather than to do good. The reality of God's character, his justice, it should guide the masters in the path of righteousness and it should give hope to the slaves as they endure their station in life. Point number five, remember God's example. Is that my daughter over there? Patience, sit up. Thank you. Listen to the words of 1 Peter chapter two. Slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect. And this is very important. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, we've already seen that wives are called to submit to and respect their husbands even if they're not good husbands, right? We've already seen that children are called to honor their parents, even if they're not good parents. We've already seen that citizens are called to submit to the governing authorities, even if they are evil authorities who are using their authority poorly. And slaves are called to be subject to their masters, even if they are evil and unjust masters. Now, the reason why I'm walking through all these examples again, husbands and wives, children and parents, citizens and rulers, is because I want to show you that this is not one aspect of authority that's unique to slaves and masters. 
You know, this is not something that was like inserted into the Bible by slave owners in the South a couple hundred years ago in order to keep their slaves docile and obedient. This is part of a universal Christian theology of authority. All authority is God's authority, including unjust authority, and therefore we must submit to it. Now, We've already talked about times when you need to reject authority. If, if that authority tries to get you to rebel against God and his law, then you reject it. But if not, you are still called to submit to and obey unjust authority. It's built into the very fabric of our Christian understanding. And regardless of what sphere you happen to find yourself in, at some point in your life, in this world, which is broken and ruined by sin, you will likely be required to obey, submit to, or honor some kind of unjust authority. I think it happens every day in America, given how messed up our government is. Not super happy about the way a lot of things are happening. My tax dollars are being used to fund the murder of babies. Every day we are forced to submit to, respect, and honor authority that is unjust. It's not as if the reality of sin completely undid God's Uh, design for authority structures in this world. It's not as if sin entered the world and all of a sudden God said, you know what, sin really messed this up. Let's just tear it all down and all become anarchists. That is not what is happening. That is the reason why Paul reminds Titus to remind Christians, he says this, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. Why does he say that? Because we need to be reminded. Because so often we are inclined to rebel and we always want to find an excuse to do so. And oftentimes we have valid reasons for doing so. Several times, uh, you may be asking, what does any of this have to do with God's example, right? That was the name of point number four, God's example. No, point number five. Remember God's example. What does that have to do with God's example? Well, We've noticed several times over the last few weeks uh, that God understands. Like he really and truly understands what we are going through as we suffer under unjust authority in this fallen world. Listen to what Peter says, uh, which our sister Susan read so well earlier. Listen to what he says to those suffering servants. He says, for to this you have been called, that is suffering unjustly, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. You see that? Peter is saying, yes, you are suffering. And yes, I do know that it's hard, but remember that God himself has been through the same thing. And then he goes on, he says that Jesus, when he suffered, he did not threaten, nor did he rebel, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Oh, and now we see the character of God again, don't we? How is Jesus able to endure suffering under unjust? How is he able to endure the mockery and the, the sham trial of the Jews? How is he able to endure the Romans putting him to death when there was no... How is he able to go through all of that? Well, because he entrusted himself to God who would one day render perfect judgment and justice. But then we still come back to the question, what about, what about my experience? What about what I'm feeling right now? What about what I'm going through? As Will prayed so powerfully for people who are, in, even Christians like in Nigeria who have been kidnapped by a Boko Haram, what about their experience? And I say yes and amen to that. 
I, I, I mean, that's probably the thing that I'm, I, my, my soul most wants to identify with, yes. But then I, I remember, and I just have to ask, what about eternity? We think about our experience, our, our 10, 20, 50, I don't know how long we're going to be here, 80 at most, 100, at absolute most, 110 or 20 years. We look at that and we think, oh, how could God ever let us endure such, a, uh, uh, such suffering for such a long time? But compared to eternity, it's nothing. That's why the Bible says that we are, our lives are like a vapor, like a mist. We're here today and we are gone tomorrow. And it seems like this reality of eternity is what's in Jesus' mind as he's enduring his suffering on earth. He's playing the long game. He's not being governed by his experiences here on earth, which are here today and gone tomorrow. He's being governed by the reality of eternity, which is so big we can't even begin to comprehend it. And Jesus says that he did that as an example for us. I think Jesus means for us as we endure the suffering to, yes, cry out to God, tell him about our pain, ask him to do us good, and he often does. Lament to God as we have such an abundant example of in the scriptures. Just go through and read the Psalms just over and over again. People are suffering injustice and they're like, God, hello, are you there? Help. So do that. Yes, do that. But as you do that, also remember that what you experience for a few decades on this earth is not all that there is. Eternity is coming. So be like Jesus and keep your eyes focused on that and your great rewards on that day. Blaise Pascal, he's famous for making the observation that uh, even if Christianity isn't true, our lives would still be the better for having practiced its tenets. So, you know, go all in on being a Christian, even if it's not true, even if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, your life will still be a good life. It'll be a better life for having practiced the Christian faith. Uh, friends, uh, no disrespect to Blaise Pascal, infinitely smarter than I will ever even hope to be, but he could only say that because he wasn't a slave. You know what I'm saying? Because for a lot of people, to be a Christian means that you embrace uh, an abundance of suffering. For many of us, it means that we endure more suffering than we would ever endure in this life if we were to just go along with the flow of the world. If we just kind of did what the world said to do, if we just followed the prince of the power of the air, our life would probably have a lot less suffering. You know, a, a non-Christian slave has a good reason to rise up in the middle of the night and kill his master. A Christian slave doesn't really have that option. So for Blaise Pascal to say, oh yeah, our lives are just better off if, if we just practice the tenets of the Christian religion, that, that is just not true. Paul actually goes on to talk about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, listen, if the gospel isn't real, if Jesus is still in the grave, then we are men most to be pitied. Why? Why are we men most to be pitied? Because we endure so much suffering in this world in light of the gospel. We don't have to suffer like this. Paul could have just kept on being the great Jew that he was, you know, leading the charge against the church. You know, he probably would have retired well, had a nice little house on the, a little villa down by the coast. It would have been great. But instead, he was beaten and shipwrecked, naked and hungry, abandoned, hated, you know, eventually he was killed. And the same thing is true for us. We endure so much suffering in this life because we follow our Lord Jesus Christ. But we do it because we understand that promise of future glory. Point number six. Remember the gospel. We said last week that in the new society that's being built by the gospel, uh, there is no slave or free 
But in the meantime, in Ephesus, the society that this society is planted inside of, slavery is still very much alive and well. And so Paul says, you have to figure out how to, how to live your lives in light of the gospel and in light of your experience. So, in light of this reality, slaves are called to glorify God by the way that they use their authority and submit to it. Uh, Listen to these words from Titus chapter two, verses nine through 10. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that, right? Whenever you see so that in the text, it should clue you in, stop, slow down, pay attention, Because Paul's about to explain why he's saying what he's saying. Why should slaves behave in this way? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Listen to the same thing from 1 Timothy chapter 6. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect. Why? So that... God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Now, in in these verses, Paul is basically saying, hey, listen, there is something more important for you as a Christian than than your experience under your master, and that is uh, the gospel. And there's a way that you can submit to your master that will undermine the gospel. And there's a way that you can submit to your master that will actually adorn the gospel. Now, In these verses, Paul is only addressing slaves, but I think based off of Ephesians 6 this morning, I I think it's reasonable for us to take this and extrapolate it out to both masters and slaves, okay? And so uh, I think I would summarize this last point like this. The way that we submit to and exercise authority in this fallen world can commend or condemn the gospel, The way that we submit to and exercise authority in this fallen world, whether we're husbands and wives, parents and children, uh, rulers and citizens, masters and slaves, the way that we submit to and exercise authority in this fallen world can either adorn the gospel or it can detract from it. So going back to my time in the army, I remember those sergeants who led well, few of them as they were, they always stood out. You know, there's always something different about that sergeant who didn't have to yell, he didn't have to scream, he didn't have to threaten, he didn't have to hit. He led from the front. He was, if, if there was a gospel that he was preaching to us on the side, the way that he conducted himself would have adorned that gospel. And the same thing is true for, of soldiers. There were soldiers who, you know, we all suffered. <laughs> we all suffered. And uh, some of us, me, all too often, suffered with grumbling and complaining and being disrespectful and being people-pleasing and only offering eye service and all these other things. But those who suffered well, they stood out. You know, man, this guy, he's always got a smile on his face, you know? He always seems like he's up for the task, even though we all hate what's going on here. So whether Paul is talking about parents and husbands or masters, he wants them to understand that their authority says something about Jesus. Whether he's talking to children, citizens, wives, or slaves, he wants them to understand that the way that they submit says something about Jesus. So let's think about a concrete example of this, okay? Uh, Most of us in this room either have now or have had a really terrible boss, right? You know what I'm talking about, the kind of boss that just, you just don't want to get up and go to work the next morning. You know, a boss that's so brutal, you're lying in bed at night and you're thinking, 
I just don't want to get up and go in. I don't want to have to go deal with that guy. I know what it's like to have a boss like that, by the way. It's terrible. If that's you, let's just think about what what we've learned today, today and try to apply that. Remember that your service is not ultimately to your boss, but to God, who gave him the authority that he has in your life. Remember God's character. Remember that the Lord rewards those who suffer well. Mindful of God, those who suffer in faith, remember that he rewards those who suffer in this way under these harsh conditions. Remember God's justice. Remember as your boss calls you in on the weekend for the fourth weekend in a row, even though he told you that he was never going to call you in on weekends. And by the way, he's not giving you overtime and all those other things. Just remember that the Lord has promised to bring justice against those who abuse their authority. Cling to that promise of God's justice. And I think if you do all this, there is a sense in which you may not always do it perfectly and you may not do it consistently, but you can very much serve your bad boss with a sincere heart. Not as a people pleaser by way of eye service, but as unto Christ. Or maybe you're the boss, right? We got a couple of people here in the, in the room this morning who are in charge of other people, Right? Ask yourself, okay, am I using my authority like the, like the sergeants who threaten and yell and scream, or am I using my authority like Christ to serve, to seek the welfare of the people that are underneath my authority? I think most of us, when we hear this, and we, I mean, I was thinking back about my time uh, in the workforce, uh, in the kind of the normal civilian workforce, as I was working through the text this week, and I just, I just thought of multiple times that I failed at this, right? <laughs> just like, well, I, I did not adorn the gospel there. And when I said that to my boss here, I definitely detracted from the gospel, right? And uh, I've never really been in charge of people, right, that, for obvious reasons. But if, if that's you and you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, I've definitely uh, detracted from the gospel. I've definitely taken away from my gospel witness by the way I've used my authority on the job. Like, I just want to tell you, it's okay. Uh, grace is real. You're loved, you're forgiven, but you're also challenged, and you're also called to do better, you know? So, so don't beat yourself up over it, but also do ask the Lord for forgiveness, and then ask him to give you the grace and the mercy and the power to be able to go back out into that workplace and to, to do well for the glory of his name and for the advancement of the gospel. Now, uh, in closing, I want to tell you this. Uh, All of us are in some way exercising and submitting to authority. Every single one of us. That's just the way the world works. This is just, it's not an option. Uh, Yeah, but one day, all of these authority structures that we participate in, they're all going to crumble. It's not going to be like this forever. One day, God will come with his perfect rule and reign, and he will establish his kingdom where he rules sovereignly forever. Listen Listen to that day in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a white robe dripped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and all corrupt authority. 
and he will rule them with a rod of iron, which I think represents his perfect justice. He will tread out the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When that day comes, friend, every single person will bow the knee to Jesus Christ and they will all acknowledge him as Lord. So my question for you this morning is, are you prepared for that day? Let's pray. Father, we so often find ourselves uh, asking the question that Will asked in his prayer this morning, how long, O Lord? And then when we read your word and we see that uh, the people who have been following you for thousands of years have been asking that same question for millennia, we recognize that uh, our hearts join in the chorus of your people who cry out and they just want to know, Lord, how long how long must we endure the injustices of this world, these broken systems, the abuse of authority? How long must we cling to the hope of the future? When will you bring that hope and make it real and present now so that we no longer need eyes of faith? Help us to trust you while we wait, Lord. Help us to have a strong faith. Help us to endure well for the glory of your name for the sake of the nations. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Mm-hmm.